Hello and welcome to Playback Daily for Wednesday the 12th of April. I'm Louise Herity and here's just some of what's coming up. The United States of America will continue to be your partner in building the future the young people of our world deserve. It matters to us, to Americans, and to me personally. But anyway, he took up weight training and won many medals for the over 90s World Championship thereafter. And that's when the panic really set in. So I had an interpreter in front of me. I signed my name 50,000 times. Did you? I was given a Xanax. I was told you were doing this, you're doing that. I was brought upstairs and then my head was shaved completely. <laughs> Well, it was all about the Joe Show today as the US President began his visit to Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, starting in Belfast, where he gave a keynote speech at the Ulster University. We'll hear some of that shortly, but first, the people of Carlingford in County Louth were gearing up for the big arrival, as reporter Kean McCormack told Morning Ireland. Well, good morning, Audrey. Right now, it's a lovely, bright, calm morning here. There's a blue sky with little grey, fluffy clouds just kissing the top of the Bourne Mountains, which I can see as I'm looking out here over Carlingford Lock. But yesterday when I arrived here, it was a different story. It was lashing rain, uh, but that rain really wasn't dampening people's enthusiasm because as I look around, actually, the the place here is decorated with bunting and star-spangled banners and locals, when you're talking to them, they're just bursting with pride that their village will be visited again at this time by an American president. And in short, people are saying here that President Biden is a man who remains true to his word because when he was here as vice president, he promised to come back as president. And, you know, just talking to people, they're just so, so proud about that. Here's a taste of some of the conversations I had with people here yesterday, starting with Paul Carroll of Gan House, who showed me a photo of his son and President Joe Biden from the 2016 visit to Carlingford. What's this, Paul? You're showing me your telephone. Six years ago, Joe came came to town and my little boy, Caden, was only six years old at the time and he shook uh, Joe's hand. Do you know what? It's really interesting because you referred to the President of the United States as Joe. Do people see him as Joe here? I think he comes across as a very personable family man and having met him, yes, he does come across extremely, extremely well. Is he sound? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Eamon Thornton, and I have a Citroen van there. Um, two years ago, I got when he got elected, I got the writing on the van, President of America Joe Biden, welcome home to Whitestown. So it's just you've decided to paint up the van yourself. It's like if you had a team going to the All-Ireland, you'd do the same, right? You have it in one. Yeah. I couldn't put it better myself. The last time he was here, he was vice president. Like, how long were you talking to him for? We were talking to him for about an hour. And he, uh, I said, on one occasion, I said, you know, Mr. Vice President, if you happen to leave here, you could be head barman here in this pub. And he says, I wouldn't be getting as much money as I'm getting now. <laughs> but he really enjoyed himself. Went round and spoke to everyone as if he was just dropping in for a drink, you know. And Are you proud of him? Very proud. Everyone around here is very proud. The President of the United States, the most important man in the world in our midst here in this small area, of course we're proud of him. Well, they're looking forward to a presidential visit and Dundalk will get a, a visit as well later on today. What do we know about that, Kian? 
Well, look, Audrey, everything here, it's its an open secret, basically, because everyone knows he's coming to Carlingford, but then they qualified their answers with the word if, as in if he comes here, he could visit the castle or whatever the case may be. But uh, people have enough information to sketch out roughly what will happen and when he'll be here and when he'll be in Dundalk. Here's the president's fifth cousin, Andrea McEvitt, who's a local Fianna Fáil councillor and Lasco Herlock of Louth County Council. Even though it's raining in Carlingford here, I think there's a real sense of euphoria and excitement. People are going around putting up their flags and giddy nearly getting ready and excited for what's to come. Have you the inside track to what exactly is going to happen? We do know that he's going to be landing in our local GA club, Cooley Kickhams. Then we hope that he's coming to King John's Castle with the potential of a visit at Kilwara Cemetery where he visited the last time to visit the grave of his ancestors. He's then expected to go into Dundalk and do a walkabout and a meet and greet with people, which we are very excited about that he's going to really embrace the town of Dundalk and County Louth and the people that are willing to come out and meet him and shake hands. I think the visit of President Biden here to a border county, it's even huge because he's coming to remember and to mark the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. So I think even his visit to a border county like Louth here will have a great effect on tourism. Your, your own family, are they as excited as you? Well, I think my mum thinks that President Biden's coming to the house because she's in one of them mad spring cleaning kind of outbursts. And I'm like, mum, he's definitely not going to come here. Well, you never know. <laughs> well, I think I think we can say definitely no. I hope she's been making the brown bread. Uh, no, she hasn't actually focused on the cooking. It's more the cleaning. Make sure, make sure the china's clean. So whatever she puts in the china, we'll have to wait and see. So the good china's ready. The good china's ready and went for President Biden. <laughs> you know, certainly things are big when the good China is ready and it's ready here and waiting for President Biden, as you just heard from Councillor Andrea McEvitt. Uh, but President Biden is expected to go to Dundalk. And the owner of a chip van here in Carlingford was able to tell me that his son's ice cream parlour is expecting a presidential visit later today. Colin O'Connor and we're in the square in Carlingford. We have, we're well stocked up, we've boxes, burgers and bags and bags of chips. Are people excited about Joe Biden's arrival to, to yes. County Louth? We are, yeah. We actually have another shop in the door called XXA Ice. It's a rolled ice cream company and I actually think that the stop could be on the cards there. You think you might go in for an ice cream, is it? Uh, it's on the cards, yeah. His men was in, they were doing their checks and stuff and could be breaking like uh, national security secrets here now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could get myself in trouble. Well, what kind of ice cream? Will you be there now or will you come down here to sell chips? No, I'll be here selling chips. My son, Tiernan, he, he owns that XXA company, XXA Ice. He'll be serving them there. So he will be serving them there, right? Yes. The, well, we don't know. We won't know till tomorrow. Or they will not tell us, but they were in. Yes. What did they look like? Nothing like the movies anyway. What kind of things were they checking out then? Everything. Camera systems, seating. So have I the inside scoop? Sorry about the pun. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Is there a presidential ice cream on the menu then? There possibly could be. I just can't disclose that right now. Could you even give me a hint? Would it be vanilla? Would it be chocolate? Or Ferrero Rocher. It's the best seller in town and it's fit for a president. That was Keen McCormick's report on Morning Ireland where President Joe Biden visited his ancestral roots today. And earlier Mr Biden gave a keynote address at Ulster University in Belfast as we heard on the News at One. The simple truth is that peace and economic opportunity 
go together. Peace and economic opportunity go together. In the 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, Northern Ireland's gross domestic product has literally doubled. Double. And I predict to you, if things continue to move in the right direction, it will more than triple. There are scores of major American corporations wanting to come here, wanting to invest. Many have already made homes in Northern Ireland, employing over 30,000 people. And in just the past decade, American business has generated almost $2 billion in investment in the region. $2 billion. Today, Northern Ireland is a churn of creativity, art, poetry, theater. Some of our favorite television shows and movies are filmed here, <laughs> as you know. And I understand the star of the recent Oscar-winning film and someone of Belfast barista, James Martin, is here today. James, where are you? I got to meet James, and I got my picture taken. I'm going home and brag to my daughter. <laughs> Cruise ships packed with tourists filled Belfast port. And young people, instead of fleeing for opportunities elsewhere, can see their futures and careers for themselves that speak to unlimited possibilities here. How many of you have heard over the years, those you old, my, closer to my age, Mom, Dad, there's nothing here for me. I'm going to move. I'm going to leave. I got to go. Well, it's not happening now. So it's up to us to keep this going, to keep building on the work that has been done every day for the last 25 years, to sustain the peace, unleash this incredible economic opportunity, which is just beginning. I promise you. You think I'm joking. It's just beginning. We get this, keep it going. We all know there's more we can do together. You know, there's so much energy and dynamism, especially among young people who are starting their own businesses, blazing their own trails, connecting to the global community of entrepreneurs. And young people in Northern Ireland are on the cutting edge of sectors that are going to define so much of the future. Cyber, technology, clean energy, life sciences. Here in Northern Ireland, programs like Young, young Entrepreneur, Young Enterprise Northern Ireland, helping thousands of young people each year gain skills and pursue the goals, their goals as entrepreneurs. That's why I asked Joe Kennedy, my new special envoy in Northern Ireland of Economic Affairs, to help supercharge that work, to bring more businesses, more investment, more opportunity here to Northern Ireland, and help realize the enormous economic potential of this region. Because I know parenthetically, when that happens here, it gives faith, faith to people around the world. If it can be done here, it can be done in my community. Not a joke. The world is changing. It's changing drastically. And it presents enormous opportunity, but also significant dangers. To that end, later this year, Joe's going to be leading a trade delegation of American companies to Northern Ireland. Now, I know the UK's departure from the European Union created complex challenges here in Northern Ireland. And I encourage the leaders of the UK and the EU to address the issues in a way that serve Northern Ireland's best interest. I deeply appreciate the personal leadership of Prime Minister Sunak and European Commissioner von der Leyen, 
to reach an agreement. The Windsor framework addresses the practical realities of Brexit and the essentials and it's an essential step to ensuring hard-earned peace and progress of the Good Friday agreements is that they're preserved and strengthened. You know, the negotiators listened to business leaders across the UK and Ireland who shared what they needed to succeed. And I believe the stability and predictability offered by this framework will encourage greater investment in Northern Ireland, significant investment in Northern Ireland. I come from a little state where in the state of Delaware and back home has more corporations that are registered in that state than every other state in the union combined. So I know a little bit about corporate attitudes. All the immense progress we see around us was built through conversation and compromise, discussion and debate, voting and inclusion. It's an incredible attestation to the power of democracy to deliver needs for all the people. And now I know better than most how hard democracy can be at times. We in the United States have firsthand experience how fragile even long-standing democratic institutions can be. You saw what happened on January the 6th in my country. We learn anew with every generation that democracy needs champions. When I went to college, I was a political science major and history major. We were told every generation has to fight to preserve democracies. <coughs> I didn't believe it at the time. I just thought it was automatic. We had this great democracy. What would we need to do? As a friend, I hope it's not too presumptuous for me to say that I believe democratic institutions established through the Good Friday Agreement remain critical to the future of Northern Ireland. It's a decision for you to make, not for me to make, but it seems to me they're related. An effective, devolved government that reflects the people of Northern Ireland and is accountable to them, a government that works to find ways through hard problems together, is going to draw even greater opportunity in this region. So I hope the Assembly and the Executive will soon be restored. That's a judgment for you to make, not me, but I hope it happens, along with the institutions that facilitate North-South and East-West relations, all of which are vital pieces of the Good Friday Agreement. For in politics, no matter what divides us, if we look hard enough, there are always areas that are going to bring us together if we look hard enough. Standing for peace, rejecting political violence must be one of those things. So I want, so I want to once more recognize the way the leaders of Northern Ireland's major political parties come together in the wake of attempted murder of Detective Chief Inspector Caldwell to show that the enemies of peace will not prevail. Northern Ireland will not go back, pray God. The attack was a hard reminder that there will always be those who seek to destroy rather than rebuild. But the lesson of the Good Friday Agreement is this. In times when things seem fragile or easily broken, that is when hope and hard work are needed the most. That's when we must make our theme repair, repair. And in Holy Easter season, this season, when all Christians celebrate renewal and life, the Good Friday Agreement showed us that there is hope for repair, even in the most awful breakages. You know, it helped people all around the world to hope for renewal and progress 
in their own lives, and most of all, allowed an entire generation of young people in Northern Ireland and across the UK and the Republic of Ireland to grow up in a society mended by connection, made stronger by independence, interdependence, and respect. Young people like Gabrielle, who we just heard from earlier. Her success and her opportunities have been underwritten by the Good Friday Agreement. Young people like Jordan Graham, born less than three weeks after the agreement was signed in 1998. His whole life, his whole life has unfolded under the wing of peace, which means not quite 25 years of age, he's been able to build an expertise in branding and marketing that he's used to help grow local businesses, support startups, consult for charities. Young people like Amy Clint, born in 2000, whose parents like to tell the story about how she came home from her first day of secondary school and asked, what's the difference between a Protestant and a Catholic? What's the difference between a Protestant and a Catholic? She didn't grow up thinking in sectarian divides. She grew up thinking about how she should support her beloved brother and other children with autism. Today, Amy's social enterprise has donated more than 5,000 copies of her book to schools across Northern Ireland to help children better understand autism and to learn to treat others with kindness and respect. That's the real power of the Good Friday Agreement, compassion. Compassion. It changed how this entire region sees itself. In the words of Morrissey, Belfast's first poet laureate, what's left is dark and quiet, but bookended by light, as when Dorothy opens the dull cabin door and happens out what happens outside is technicolor. What happens outside is technicolor. This place is transformed by peace, made technicolor by peace, made whole by peace. So today, I come to Belfast to pledge to all the people of Northern Ireland, the United States of America will continue to be your partner in building the future the young people of our world deserve. It matters to us, to Americans, and to me personally. It generally matters if you've traveled my country. So let's celebrate 25 extraordinary years by recommitting to renewal, repair, by making this exceptional peace the birthright of every child in Northern Ireland for all the days to come. That's what we should be doing. God willing, you'll be able to do it. Thank you all for listening, and may God bring you the peace we need. Thank you. U.S. President Joe Biden's keynote speech at the Ulster University in Belfast earlier today, as we heard on the news at one. Philip Boucher-Hayes was in for Claire Byrne today and he heard about the importance of exercise as you grow older. Philip's guests Jenny Brannigan, chartered physiotherapist at Total Physio Sandyford and Professor Roseanne Kelly, responsible for ageing research at Trinity College Dublin. Let us start with the good news first, please. Uh, You're saying that today's 60-year-old is yesterday's 40-year-old and your message is, don't give up. Oh, 
absolutely don't, don't give up. In fact, outside we were just discussing, I think, a great example, a chap, chap called Charles Eggster, who was a dentist, who, you know, rode and skied to a fairly high level in his youth, then became, as many do, a couch potato in midlife, etc. And then in his mid-60s decided, enough of this, I've put on enough of weight and, you know, nothing's happening and I feel unwell. And he started to exercise again and he again rode and skied and to a very high level. And when he was 85 and his second wife had died at this stage, he looked in the mirror and noted he had a pancake butt, as he said himself, in the <laughs> TED Talk. And at 85, he took up weight Well, first training. of all, you have to say, fair enough and well played to him that he was able to actually turn around that far <laughs> and see behind him at 85. That's very true. But anyway, he took up weight training and, and, and won many medals for the over-90s World Championship thereafter. So I, I love the example of him because he's an example of it's never too late. And, and particularly with respect to resistance training, which is what weights are, they're really, really important as we get older because sarcopenia this business of fat accumulating in muscles rather than just the muscle tissue sets in is really really common and it's hard to shift when it sets in so weights are good for uh, um, keeping sarcopenia out of the system. We're not talking immediately about heading off to the gym and starting pumping iron we'll get into a little bit more detail Mm -hmm. on that later. Jenny from what age does our muscle start to degenerate? At what point should we actually say, okay, now's the time to start paying attention to this? We need to be thinking about future proofing from our late 30s onwards. So this loss of lean muscle mass that Roseanne mentioned there, that starts from late 30s into our early 40s. So we might look the same in photographs, but that's this fatty infiltration into our muscles happening. So you might look the same, you might feel the same in your clothes, but gradually you notice over time your grip strength starts to diminish. You don't have quite the same stamina over time. So we need to be thinking about it much, much earlier than people generally are. It's really about quality of life. We need to be thinking in these periods of time when we are very busy, and I know that people are busy with children and with careers, but we need to be making sure to prioritise that exercise also. Because, again, it's never too late, but the more you do earlier, you're future-proofing yourself so that you will be better in those later stages of life. Is the logic of what you're saying here that you actually need to be exercising more at 45 than you were at 35 to try and future-proof yourself? So you have to remember that as you age, you naturally start to lose your flexibility. You naturally lose that lean muscle mass. And with that comes reductions in balance reactions. And ultimately, as that goes on for longer periods, it reduces your confidence. So people start to notice that they're not doing the same amount of exercise as they used to do. And then they start to think, well, actually, I'm not able to do any more than this. So they start to develop this smaller comfort zone of movement. And if they're not challenging constantly that comfort zone of movement to make their bodies more resilient, then they start to get worried if they do something out of the ordinary and they feel a strain. And they think, oh, that movement doesn't suit me. So they don't do that movement anymore. So you have to be constantly challenging your body, making sure that you do different movements throughout the day so that you are resilient. If you do suddenly have to run after a child across the road, you can do that. If it's a sunny day and you suddenly want to do some gardening, your body is able for that. So are you doing enough different movement outside that comfort zone of movement so that you have that resilience to be able to live a comfortable life and the quality of life piece, doing the things that you want to do? So literally, 
Roseanne, we should not just be stepping, but moving and stretching outside of our comfort zone in everything that we do every day. And your 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 question was very um, pertinent. I recommend to patients after the age of 50, do a little bit more every year. And that should continue until the day you die. A little bit more every year, not less. And we really need to get into that mindset. It's a mindset thing. We assume... Ugh, I mean, you can't expect me to go out now tonight for a walk. Look, I'm 70, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, actually. So so it's getting into the mindset of a little bit more. Um, and the other thing I think, Philip, which is, a, which is a, an important message is for people to try and do exercise with others. It's hard to do it on your own, particularly as you get older. Um, and, you know, you mightn't have the confidence to go into a gym on your own at 75. But if you're doing classes with other people or doing something with others, you know, there's the fun element and the social support element, which is important. The problem here, though, is mm. that once you go into a gym, unless you're accompanied by a physical trainer, mm. if you start lifting weights and pumping iron, mm. you're going to start picking up injuries pretty Absolutely, soon, yeah. And it has to be done under supervision because it won't happen otherwise. And that's why only in the US, where this is, you know, the message is out there, only 8% of people over 75 do any weight training, do any resistance training. So, but we do need resistance training and we actually need it more as we get older than we do in youth because of the muscle loss that we've discussed. So we, we, it would be fantastic if we could have some sort of a, a programme through policy whereby there were supervised uh, exercise uh, programmes within gyms for people, say, over the age of 70 or whatever, so people felt comfortable doing mm, it under mm. supervision. The other important thing we haven't mentioned yet is the bone health element of this. Mm -hmm. So as we get older, our bone health is really vitally important and we have a high rate of osteoporosis in this country and the stronger your muscles are and the more you are weight training as you get older, you improve your bone mineral density. And that's very important because the stronger muscles you have, the better you're going to be from a movement point of view, you're going to be more stable, so your balance reactions will improve and you reduce your risk of falling. If you fall in older age, it's much more of a problem. So we have to try and prevent that by lifting weights earlier and more and more and continuing into 70s, 80s and 90s like Charles did. As you mentioned osteoporosis, somebody has texted on 51551. Would your guest care to comment on an article in yesterday's Irish Times re-osteoporosis suggesting that adults should do 30 minutes of resistance exercise daily? Should we not build rest days into our exercise regime? Let me... Uh, just twist that question a little bit because mm. we've talked about weights. Should we not also be th- considering Pilates classes mm. and yoga classes, Rosanne? They're all resistance exercise programmes. Mm. I mean, so when, I, when I say weights, I'm using it as a generic term for resistance Your, your own body is a weight as well. Yes, you absolutely. And, yeah. and that's what Pilates does. It actually utilises that weight. And many people find Pilates classes much, much easier to take part in. And, and again, we were discussing that, that there are now uh, Pilates classes which are machine assisted reformers which might be easier for for folk who are new to Pilates rather than trying to get up and down off the ground uh, with respect to Can I put in a word for yoga? A personal revelation Mm. for somebody who has come to yoga quite late Mm. in life just how enjoyable it is and how limber you feel and the meditative and the breathing aspect to it is really quite special Jenny. 
It's absolutely fantastic. And it's a really good way, again, because you have a class there. There's a group mentality also. So you do start to get that social outlet also. But one thing I just want to pick up on from your listener there, I did see that article in The Times yesterday. The important, it's not actually resistance training every day. What you're looking for is you're looking for resistance training two to three times a week. Mm. So the World Health Organization recommendation is for you to do cardio 150 minutes per week. So we say 30 minutes of cardio per day. But for people under the age of 65, they talk about two strengths sessions per week but over the age of 65 they talk about three strengthening sessions per week so that recommendation for strengthening actually increases over the age of 65. Our built environment and the technology that we surround ourselves with now makes lives much much easier and cosets us in a way that we don't need to perhaps cosset ourselves. Would you recommend no don't use the button to close the boot of the car. Now, whatever about taking the lift up those stairs. I absolutely agree. And one thing that actually I think has not been great for us is this delivery of shopping. Because one excellent way to work strengthening into your day is actually to carry your own shopping bags and lift them in and out of the trolley and lift them into your car or lift them home if you're walking home. But if you get them delivered to your door, you're limiting the amount of lifting that you have to do in that environment. So certainly mod cons are a bit of a problem because it makes us lazy. But what we always have to think about is challenging the body. And we talked about lifting, but really what you're doing is you're trying to lift yourself against gravity. So it depends. Everybody has a different starting point. So even if you're chair bound, you can still practice lifting your body out of that chair. And that's enough of a challenge for you to be pushing that comfort zone of movement and doing more, as Roseanne says. But if somebody has a much better baseline whereby they're quite fit and active, then that challenge again, lifting against gravity becomes the weights. So the principles are the same. It really just depends on where your starting point is. And you can always get help with that starting point to start to move forward. Roseanne, what are your thoughts on team sports for older people? For the person who says, hurling was my sport, if I can't play that, I'm I'm not going to do anything. Ooh, well, um, I mean, I think team sports are, are, first of all, anything in a team gives great camaraderie. Um, Clearly, it has to be, if you're just reintroducing yourself into it, it should be gradual. You can't assume you're going to be as functional at 55 as you were at 25 on a hurling pitch. But there's no reason why not. Um, And and I, I would say intergenerational sports are brilliant, but make sure that there's a sufficient number of people of your own age um, on the team. And, And if I could just add that we haven't talked about the benefits for the brain. Uh, as we get older and exercise. Exercise almost acts like a bubble bath for new brain neurotransmitters. And, and it's pretty much the only thing which increases the size of the hippocampus, which is the area of the brain, the only area of the brain that we can increase neurons in, the number of nerve cells, grow new nerve cells. Um, and they're important for memory and for focus. So so think of when I you're exercising your brain. Grow brain cells at all. That's really We can in the hippocampus. And and there 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 are now we know of growth factors which exercise releases from muscle and from liver during exercise called BDNF and LTP and they directly influence the number of neurons which are the nerve cells and the number of synapses between neurons, which are the connections, which is the activity. They almost make our hippocampal new cells behave like teenagers. They're so eager for function. 
This is unrelated, is it, to the endorphin rush that you get after exercise? So, so, so they're the growth hormones I've cited. The other ones, are the other neurotransmitters are dopamine, serotonin, um, um, noradrenaline, and that's what you're talking about. They're the endorphins, which are the feel-good factors that are associated with exercise. A few more of the texts. Here in Oranmore, we have an excellent programme for older adults. Mm-hmm. We are all like spring chickens down here. Also, the social <laughs> interaction after... I the coffee is wonderful for our mental health says Christina Hi Philip orienteering is a sport that can grow with you I'm regularly overtaken by a spry 90 year old says Nicola I think you need to speed up there Nicola might be the answer (laughs) to that it really does I suppose it's just a question of uh, mindset you can adjust all of these sports can't you to suit your own age you have to find what you love and then you will keep doing it Physiotherapist Jenny Brannigan and Professor Rose Ann Kelly on Today with Philip Boucher-Hayes. From exercise as you grow older to alcohol-free dancing. On the Ray Darcy Show, Catherine Thomas spoke to guest Paul Walsh, organiser of Ireland's first sober rave. It was an absolute whopper night. Was it a good one? It was a banger, as they say. No, but it actually was. Like, I suppose once people, you know, when you first arrive, I suppose there's like a warming up element, right? Yes. But But sure, that's like any party, you know, the L21st. You're waiting for people to arrive and there's that nervous anticipation. So it's a natural process. So I suppose once you kind of arrive, you're chatting to a few people, the music is starting up, you're kind of loosening up a bit. But I suppose once the intensity of the music starts picking up and you're starting to more, you're loosening up more and more, you kind of forget about everything and you're actually just involved in the process of your dancing. Sure. And an hour later, if you check back in on yourself, you're like, oh my God, like I'm actually, I'm in my flow, I'm expressing myself, I'm actually experiencing a buzz. And if someone said, here, do you need a drink? It's like, what, what for? And I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying for a lot of people because we've had sober discos and sober nights out but the whole techno and rave scene for a lot of people, it is kind of about the drugs and the, the alcohol um, in terms of that stimulus. Absolutely. So I lived in Berlin for a year, uh, 2015 to 2016. So like Berkheim's one of the biggest clubs in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, That year I went to Berkheim about 30 times and 25 of the times I went sober. Mm. And I suppose like um, my alcohol and drug days were behind me, but I was still wanting to actually like go to to clubs and listen to Whopper music and actually dance. So I suppose while I was living in Berlin, I was like, right, I'm actually going to really try this and I'm really going to commit to this. You know, so I'd walk into the club and the first hour it would be like, okay, I'm just warming up. But the tunes are so good and I genuinely genuinely want to dance. So I'm like, I'm just going to commit to this. And then over time or as you warm up, as you warm up more and more and more and I check in, I check back in on myself. I'm like, I'm actually there. I'm in the state Mm. that I want to be in. I'm dancing to the music expressively. I then also sit in, I'm waking up the next day without hangovers. And I'm like, there's something here. That is the magic. There's something here. So why (laughs) do you think a lot of us need to have a few drinks to dance? Because if it's innately in us, for sure, why do we need it? Okay, so my sense is that it's something to do with anxiety and awkwardness, right? Yeah. So like even right now, before I start this interview, right? So like I'm excited, but also there's a bit of nerves in me, right? Sure. But I'm not making my nerves a problem. I'm going to let them be there and I'm going to proceed forward anyway. So again, if we go into social situations, there is some type of awkwardness. But there's this feeling that the awkwardness shouldn't be there and we need to get it to go away. And therefore you have a few drinks and it goes away. Mm. But I suppose my sense is that it's possible to be with that awkwardness in a kind of a soft, kind way, but engage in conversation. Ask a, a question with curiosity. Be, be enthusiastic in your attitude. And if you stay doing that and someone else is being enthusiastic back with you, half an hour later, you'll probably discover that 
the awkwardness and anxiety is gone and you're mm. now in a good state. Mm. And then just keep going. How did it go down, first of all? <laughs> um, like for, how many people turned up, first of all? Uh, so 127 tickets were sold. Okay. So like 300 would have been a full house. So I'm reasonably happy with ticket sales. But what I'm absolutely delighted about was, I suppose, what I envisioned of... The, the states that people would get to, that totally happened. Like, in essence, like, pure rave energy was in the room when I was like, this is amazing. And uh, I'm confident that the next show, I want to sell 300 tickets. I want it to be a full house. So and by you, the way, next show, July 1st in the complex. Next show, <laughs> July 1st in the complex. So you kind of went on that journey yourself, you could say, uh, when you were living in Berlin and you had to go 25 times and really, I suppose, experience that and, and break through that that inner lack of confidence that you're now, um, I suppose, promoting that other people try, right? For sure. So like I first had a drink when I was 12 and then when I was 15, I was getting into my running quite serious and I was like, yeah, I want to stop drinking because I want to take my running serious. But then I also was like, you know, why are all my friends drinking? Because they want to have fun. I'm like, I'm just going to be a person who can have fun without drink. I just made that decision. But then when I was 22, um, I said to myself one day, you don't know the experience that you're saying no to. As in, you've never been an, an adult who's been drunk before. So I was like, I'm going to give it a go. So I went drinking that night and had a great time. And then for the next four years, I was actually drinking and taking drugs regularly enough. And then at around 26, I was kind of like, I think I'm going to rein it back. So I suppose I'm going to use the discipline that I used when I was 15 to 22, not being a drinker, just being a person who can, I suppose, uh, who tries to express themselves socially with some type of confidence or whatever. From that period, from uh, 22 to 26, when I said, right, I'm going to rein it in, that's the time that I moved to Berlin. So now I'm again. In, I'm in this environment again, where it's like you could say it's one of the, it's the clubbing. It's the biggest it's one of the clubbing, clubbing biggest clubbing in the world. cities in the yeah. world, right? And I'm like, okay, I still really want a club. I still really want a party. I'm just going to have fun without mm. using alcohol or drugs. Mm. Drink is such a big part of our culture, and that's it the is. issue. Like, I mean, I just think about an Irish wedding without a drink. For sure. So the thing is, so, so it is part of our culture, right? And I suppose I'm not saying or promoting we need to stop drinking right what I'm creating the frame is is developing the capacity to be able to enjoy yourself without the need for a drink mm. so develop like it's possible to develop that capacity however you from time to time you still may choose to enjoy a drink because you enjoy it mm. but you're not using the drink because you don't have the capacity to socialise mm. and I think that is such an important message that we need to get out there that Absolutely. it is not necessary all the time for sure to have to have that fun and to have and it's like when is that message going to hit home in Dublin and, and right. across Ireland. Some people are like, well, how can you do that? And I'm like, it's possible. Mm. It might take an hour to warm up, but you can get to a similar state, good feelings and expression in a sober rave. And I have to say, I like the fact that you're not being kind of preachy about it or, you know, finger pointy about it. It's just about asking people to maybe try it. Absolutely. Um, well, you've definitely given us something to think about. So the next one is July. Saturday, Saturday July 1st in the complex in, uh, just off Cable Street. It's an absolutely incredible space. And that's actually something that's also important. It's a place that you'd love to go to anyway. How do you promote this? Like where, where do people find out about it? Uh, the name of the event is called Club Loosen. So there's a, an Instagram page and a Facebook page. Like so it. That, that, that's, that's in full effect. And like I, it. And I love it. Love the message. Paul, thanks for coming in and chatting to me today. That was Paul Walsh on the Ray Darcy Show today. On the Ryan Tuberty Show this morning, the host spoke to Mikey O'Loughlin, who's the showbiz editor of RSVP magazine, about his decision to get a hair transplant. 
Let's go. Let's go to, to get the operation. Let's find mm. what happened. You've done your research, done, yeah. like as a journalist, you did your due diligence. Yes. Um, and you decided to go. With, uh, we won't say where, uh, clinic-wise, but you decided to go what part of the world? So I went to Turkey to Istanbul. Turkey teeth, turkey hair. <laughs> turkey teeth. This is, exactly. I hear about turkey teeth that people go and get new teeth, and they they with their, yeah. you know, we know what we're talking about there. But the hair. So why there? So it all came down to price in the end. Yeah. So I visited a number of clinics in Ireland and one trichologist told me that the price in Ireland is more expensive because it just comes down to the cost of living, the cost of the nurses, the cost of the medication. And that's why Turkey is cheaper. You won't get any less care. And once he said that, I was quite happy to make the journey to save a couple of grand um, as well and to, to make the journey over once I knew that the service is going to be good. So about two grand in the difference. two thousand euro in the difference. difference. That's a and significant. Yeah. yeah. And I got a first hand recommendation from a guy I know. Um, he had been there. I'd seen his hair. We met up face to face and he told me the clinic that he went to and I was quite happy to go with it then knowing that it was safe and I would probably get good results. How do they sell it? Is it, is it a package? Is it a deal? I mean, how, how long do you have to spend there? And Yeah, I was there three nights and they... Um, you pay for your flight separately. So whatever, what is included is your treatment, your hotel, uh, medication, um, you've post-care uh, treatment. And it was all, the, the pre, um, pre-operation was all done, done through WhatsApp. So you go over, a flyover, and the next day you're brought in for a consultation. The following day you go in for your operation and the following day you go in to be cleaned up and bandaged and then you fly home. Oh God, cleaned up and bandaged already, already getting <laughs> crazy. Um, who'd you go with? Um, I went by myself. And good idea, um, or bad idea. Um, I think in retrospect, it was probably a very bad idea. Um, I didn't tell anybody really I was doing it. Um, I told three friends for security reasons. I've watched Taken. I've watched enough, <laughs> enough movies that I knew that I needed to be answerable to people. <laughs> so okay. uh, yeah. the Turkish tourist board were just on to yeah, say yeah. thank you for taking us back twenty years. Yeah, I know. But but no, I understand. And it would be the same if you went anywhere. And, no, um, I understand. Of course, we come, we come from families of you know texting when you get there. Yeah, so. no, I appreciate that, and that's fair. And, and only correct. Uh, but why the, is it, would you say secrecy or privacy? I don't mind which word um, you use. I suppose what? there was a bit of both. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to, there was a lot to take in and I wanted to take in a lot of it by myself. If I told my mom, I would have been text every three seconds right, and okay. no offence to my mother who's listening. She loves you dearly, you does. know that. Yeah. And it would come from a place of love. So I told two, <laughs> three friends, one friend from home, one friend from work and uh, one friend from Dublin. Okay. And, um, you know, they were getting the texts. I'm on the plane. I've landed. I'm in the car. This is the address. If I don't text you in 30 minutes, I'm not there yet. Um, you know, don't hear from me, call Liam Neeson. Absolutely. Fix it up. Yeah. You get to the airport, you're... You, uh, um, tell me when uh, the when you got to the is it the hospital the next day that you the next day so okay. what yeah. happens what so um, they told me they were collecting me at half six and um, they were 15 minutes late I had to be showered hair washed and I had to have eaten for the anaesthetic they're 15 minutes late so by the time I got to the clinic I started to get rushed and that's when the panic really set in. So I had an interpreter in front of me. I signed my name 50,000 times. Did you? I was given a Xanax. I was told you were doing this, you're doing that. I was brought upstairs and then my head was shaved completely. First of all, oh my God. My, That's my, how I felt. <laughs> was, were the forms in English or Turkish? The forms were in English. Oh, um, um, well, you read not one word. I, I, I haven't a clue what okay, was there. So it's like, it's like when you say, I agree to the cookies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay, give me the cookies. I gave it, I took all the cookies that were going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they gave me his annex, which I knew was happening. Okay. Um, was brought up the stairs, and it's like this huge clinic, so state of the art, so beautiful, oh, right, okay. but so vast and kind of empty at the same time. Then I was brought to a barber's chair. My head was shaved, and 
like while I was losing my hair at the back of my head, I still had a big quiff going on at the front. And that was the real realization of wow, your hair is gone. And then I was they took photos of me. I'm standing there in a gown with like they'd taken off my clothes, put them in a locker. And then all of a sudden I was on a bed with an IV put into my arm and I realized, okay, actually, I've never been in hospital before. And all of this has happened between half six and it's now five to seven. And I'm not in this hospital bed with everything from the 15 minute journey to my head shaved to the Xanax to an IV in me. And I got a real panic attacky moment. It sounds like you were abducted and by I, like demon barbers. He, he tried to take my hair <laughs> what was left of it. So, but, but to be serious you, you did get a panic? Did you have an attack? Absolutely. Or, well Absolutely. That's, that's really and unpleasant. I was like am I going to go ahead with this? Is, is this going to happen for me? Am I going to get up walk down the stairs and go back in the taxi or the car and go, go back to the hotel? Yeah. I just didn't know what to do. Um, so I was turned over. Uh, my head was put through kind of like it was like a massage table yeah. type situation. And I went in and out of sleepiness yeah. and whatever. And I woke up and it felt like what you're holding in your hand right now, a it's clicky pen. pen. Oh, yeah. And I felt like it was that going across my head, head like this. clicking one at a time across my head. And that was fine. There was no pain there. I was woken up and I was given food and water and told to go to the toilet. And so at that point they had taken the extraction. So they'd taken hair from the back and sides of my head that they were planning to implant then into the top. So I came back and I was sitting up for the next part and my face was covered. And that's where they were started to implant the grafts, as which they're called, into the top of the head. And I felt every single graft going in. How many hairs? Um, four or was that four thousand two hundred? Oh my god! Yeah, you've suffered for your yeah. craft. Yeah. Um. So I remember asking at one point how long is left, and they said an hour and a half. And I started to pass the time, count to sixty, and go, okay, well now eighty nine uh, minutes left. Yeah. Uh, eighty eight minutes left. Right. Um. I woke up and I was shivering. I was completely shaking, and they'd cover me in blankets as they cleaned me and. There was people everywhere and obviously while the operation was on, they were, they, the people in the room were speaking Turkish, being in Turkey. Mm-hmm. And even if they were speaking in English, I'm going to listen to their conversations and, you know, listen to a bit of gossip and maybe that would have passed a bit of time. Um, and I just was on the table and I felt so lonely. I felt so vulnerable. I just felt so exposed. I was in this foreign country in my first hospital experience by myself and panicked and I just... There was nobody to to help. There was nobody to hold my hand. There was nobody to say, you'll be okay. Mm -hmm. And I think I really, really needed that. And I came back downstairs and they had to bring me for lunch and they watch you having your lunch to make sure you're okay. And the tears streamed down my face. I don't cry. The last time I cried, let's say the last two times I cried was watching It's a Sin and when Pat died in EastEnders. Oh my God. So, you know, obviously two big moments as well. (laughs) Two big moments (laughs) in your life. And I came downstairs and just they, and I I didn't know why I was crying and I was huckling and your man was just staring at me and trying to tell me what tablets I needed to take and when I needed to take them. And just, I'd say I cried for about 40 minutes. And I got... What do you think you were crying for? Um... I don't really know. Yeah. I think there was, think that obviously the medication was a part of it. I think there was ov- there was a sense of relief. One of that the pain was over, and two that this process had began, and I had wanted it for so so long, mm. and here it was, and it was happening for me. So I, I often say sometimes tears come after the bigness of it all. Yeah, you know, it's hard to process as a, at a bit by bit by bit, but eventually, sometimes you just your body or your mind just decides. And that was your moment. Yeah. The bigness of it all hit you. Um, you sit before me 
as a man with a grand head of hair on his head. Where, 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 is, where are you at? Are you, are you still in a, in a sort of follicle transitionary yeah. state or yes. what's happening? So you'll, you'll see your first results after six months. So I am three months into it now. Um, so the back and sides, which is my own hair, is quite matched to the top. So front facing, I think it, yeah. it all looks normal. I sure. don't think you anyone would notice that I've had a hair transplant. Just have a shorter, shorter hair. Even last week, I, I met um, a fellow RT colleague, and they said, "God, you look a bit different. Your 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 um your hair looks shorter." And I said, "Yeah, that's it. That, that's exactly yeah." It. And moved on. Um, are you glad you did what you did? Absolutely, and I would recommend it to anybody. I really, really would. Um, do your research. If you really want this, then go and do it. That was Mikey O'Loughlin, showbiz editor of RSVP magazine on the Ryan Tuberty show this morning. And finally, as we learn more about the power of artificial intelligence systems, questions arise about who owns creative material generated by AI. I think many of us were fooled by the picture of the Pope in a white puffer jacket recently. Well, Philip Boucher Hayes chatted to Barry Scannell, senior solicitor with William Fry, to find out more. Well, absolutely I was, but I, I guess I wasn't... Um, I'm putting my hand up to it as well, just yeah, in case you're embarrassed. Um, well, no, I mean, they're they're quite stylish in the Vatican. Um, so I just thought the Pope is an elderly man. He might have been saying mass outside. He needs a warm coat. And that did look like something that might have been designed. And I think um, that actually gives you an indication of how easy it is to um, fall foul of, of artificially generated images because, you know, context is really important. And you can use your cup on when you see an image like that and say, OK, well, that, you know, there's no nothing stands out for me there. But then... What about other potential harmful images like with politicians? You could have a politician shaking hands with a terrorist. Or I know that there's videos circulating online, for example, with uh, President Zelensky in Ukraine that are um, altered using AI with, um, you know, for for propaganda reasons that are potentially harmful. So, um, you know, we're in that brave new world now. To the uninitiated, can you explain, please, how images like this are generated? So... Um, I would say basically, but it's 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 quite complicated, but simplifying it as far as possible. The AIs are trained on billions and billions of images. Um, for example, one of the more well-known um, AI models is trained on a data set called Lion 5B. So a data set basically is just this massive tranche of data from which the AI learns. So the Lion data set is made up of nearly 6 billion text to image pairs. So the way that was created is that they, the, these bots went through the archive of the internet called the Common Crawl going back to 2008 and they pulled out all the images that were associated with text. So if you, if it pulled a picture of a cat and if the cat, if the picture of a cat was associated with the word cat, then you had but a it was captioned or explained exactly. in some way. Yeah. So you had a, a text to image pair. So Lion is made of text to image pairs like that. So kind of like when a child is learning its first words, there's a picture of an apple and underneath is the word apple. The AI learns to associate images with those words. Okay, so very crudely put, I could say, Auto-GPT, I would like to create an image of Barry Scannell sitting in an RT radio studio. It will go and get the images of those two things and marry them. Yeah, so, you know, it... it if it was a celebrity, it would. I don't think I'm, I'm quite well known. But the there are images of Barry Scandal yeah, out there, of course. But it wouldn't be able to do that quite yet. But if you said, 
Taylor Swift sitting in, you know, where there's more images, like there's millions of images of her, say, than it would so be. Um, nobody would ever people. believe that Taylor Swift would be sitting in an RT Radio <laughs> 1 studio. <laughs> OK, let's move on then, actually, now that you mentioned Taylor Swift to music and how AI is doing the same thing there. Again, is he scraping and trawling through the library of music that's online? Well, that is a, a potential issue. Um, so Google developed a music generating AI called Music LM, and it was developed using um, 280,000 hours of music. And they haven't released that yet because one of the problems they're encountering with the AI is that when it's recreating musical output, it actually inadvertently creates music that's substantially similar to the music on which it was trained. Which Does would, too good a job of sounding. Like. Yeah, exactly, which would create infringement issues and copyright issues. So it's it's effectively the same way. So there's the example, one of the early examples was about back in 2016, and it was when my attention started to be drawn to this issue, and I was originally in the music industry looking at these um, issues, was um, Sony and Sony's AI company, Sony Flow Machines, developed a Beatles song called Daddy's Car. And any of your listeners can go onto YouTube and YouTube um, Daddy's Car for this early rendition of an AI um, piece of music. And they trained it on 44 Beatles songs. Now, it sounds quite like the Beatles, not great. Maybe it was something Ringo Starr could have written, but... um Ooh, harsh. <laughs> but um, it, it's, it definitely has that Beatles vibe um, to it. And, and another way that music can be trained on AI systems is that they'll convert the sound into something called a spectrogram, which is basically a visual representation of a piece of music. And then the AI, in much the same way it analyzes pictures analyzes the music in the same way to identify the patterns it needs. Okay. Now the obvious problem here then is who ends up owning this music? Is it solely, exclusively and beneficially the copyright of the people who created this artificial intelligence that did this in the first place? Or could I, as Taylor Swift or even Ringo Starr, make an argument that, well, hang on a second, this AI generator learned from my music, took its inspiration from my music or indeed plagiarised elements of it. I want a cut of this, please. So that's the real pressing question. And the court cases that have been launched in relation to it have only really been launched in the last few months since the start of the year. Um, when copyright law was first created, nobody ever envisaged uh, a machine being able to create anything. And it was always human-centric. So if you look at most jurisdictions, only a human can create copyright uh, c copyright works. Now, Ireland is actually an outlier and the UK because we copied the UK copyright legislation when we brought in ours. And we actually allow in Ireland for um, copyright ownership um, of computer-generated works by the person who made the arrangements to, to create the works. However, in recently in the United States, the U.S. Copyright Office um, issued a decision. Now, in the U.S., they need registrations for copyright. We don't do that in Ireland. But um, an artist, Chris Castanova, she sought to register the copyright in a graphic novel, a copyright, uh, a, co a co comic book. And the thing is, is that she used AI to create the images in the comic now, the thing so she wrote the story, but the graphics of the graphic novel were created by a computer? Based on her prompts, yes. So she'd say, 
you know, generate an image of um, uh, for a graphic novel of a girl yeah. looking into the distance. And she was trying to claim the work as 100% entirely hers and cut the computer out of the proceeds, so to speak. Exactly. So what the Copyright Office in the United States said, that the graphic novel itself is fully protected by copyright. But in terms of the individual images that were generated using AI, those individual Im images are not subject to copyright registrations. So that means that she owns the copyright in the graphic novel, okay. but the in individual images themselves won't be. And that So it would not be a copyright infringement then for me to take each individual page of her graphic novel and reproduce it without permission? Yeah, that's the way it's looking like uh, it might go in okay, the United States. This is getting States. a bit very, very messy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and you see, the problem is it'll have to be decided on a case-by-case -case basis because, you know, taking the European approach, the way the European courts look at it is, is it original in the sense that it's the author's own creation? Does it reflect the author's personality? And was the author able to make free and creative choices? And that's what European courts look like. But the only way you're going to be able to identify whether or not enough human input went into an AI creation will be on a case-by-case -case basis. So I was reading a report last night, actually, it said that in 2022, there was 110 um, AI-related court cases in the United States. But there's three big ones relating to AI infringement. Now... <laughs> Taylor Swift is not really the problem here, nor Ringo Starr, because you would imagine that for the moment anyway, there is going to continue to be a market for what it is that they uniquely themselves produce without the assistance of a computer. The problem comes a little bit lower down the food chain, doesn't it, with music used in corporate videos, music used in ads, that original composition is going to be less and less valued there. And the people at that end of the industry are presumably going to start losing out. And this is a problem that isn't unique to the music industry and you're absolutely right and you know when it comes to things like you know music use as you've outlined there when it comes to things like stock photography um, you know that's all going to be problematic facing AI but the way AI is impacting the jobs market full stop is that um, you're going to have a situation where you won't necessarily be replaced by AI but you will be replaced by other people who use AI. So it might be the case that um, composers, for example, are able to generate a lot more music um, using AI systems and, and AI helpers, basically. Um, but it is certainly something that the music industry as a whole is looking at very closely because it is very impactful. Solicitor Barry Scannell on today with Philip Boucher-Hayes. Well, that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. We're back at the same time tomorrow. And remember, if you want to listen back to any of the shows you hear across Radio 1, you can do that on rte.ie slash Radio 1. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.